Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 9, sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and Sanofi. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant, from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 9 of our show focuses on what I wish I knew before transplant. Here's your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have Nancy Coslow-Roby with us, a retired physician assistant at the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Nancy was there for 34 years, and she's agreed to share her vast experience today with us as it pertains to pediatric transplant and what parents and caregivers need to know. So, Nancy, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Peggy. I'm very happy to be here today. And I hope I can help shed some light on what to expect during this bone marrow transplant journey. Terrific. So, Nancy, let's start by covering some pre-transplant concerns that affect youngsters as they are preparing for transplant. Great. Be happy to do that. Actually, in the adult oncology world, most of the transplants are for cancer issues. But in the pediatric transplant world, although most transplants are for oncology patients, but many other diagnoses can lead to a bone marrow transplant, things such as aplastic anemia, sickle cell disease, immunodeficiencies, and other genetic diseases. And I think for these patients, it's particularly difficult because these families are not familiar with the oncology lingo and procedures and, you know, chemotherapy and all the the oncology things that happen during transplant. So these families are going into this all cold. So I I feel these patients have particularly more difficult issues and aren't familiar with the issues to be discussed. That's a great point, Nancy. I never really thought about that. Let's talk about this, how it's different and what to expect. Right. Well, kids with leukemia, the oncology kids have been through multiple years usually, or rounds of chemotherapy. They know what chemo means. They know what central lines are. They know what the side effects of chemo are. They know what fluids and neutropenia, and they know about blood counts and infections. Even like the five and six-year-olds know all those, what their platelets are, what platelets do. But a lot of these other kids, sickle cell disease patients, immunodeficiency patients, they've never been in the oncology world. And have a lot to learn before even starting, you know, to get through this difficult journey. There's so much terminology and so so many side effects that they need to expect. Um, some of the oncology kids may know what works for them for nausea and vomiting. Um, you know, they say, well, I like this drug and I, I like it, you know, half an hour before or whatever. And these non-oncology patients just don't have that prior experience, thankfully, actually. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about school issues. What happens when a child is going in for a transplant? How are the school issues addressed, Nancy? Right. Well, different transplant centers have uh, very different recommendations. So I just want to point that out for sure. But in general, the child will be out of school for a long period of time. Our center at Johns Hopkins six months to be out of school for most types of transplant. And that's a really long time. Uh I would suggest that parents need to obviously plan for this in advance. 
they will need to meet with their school, the counselors to see what things are available um, in their county, in their school districts. Will the child be able to do online school, which is a lot easier to figure out and to do these days after COVID, uh, since so many children had that experience, unfortunately, during the years of COVID. Mm -hmm. Or will they get homeschooled? Will the parents teach them? Um, which seems to me like a difficult <laughs> task to, <laughs> to try to get your kid through transplant from a medical perspective and from a scholastic perspective. But that's certainly something that some parents choose. Um, Will there be a home tutor that comes into the hospital? We had some, Baltimore City actually would provide tutors to go into the hospital and they would tutor the children while they were in the hospital as long as they felt well enough. One of the issues with that, of course, is we're always worried that the tutor might be sick. <laughs> mm -hmm. What happens if the tutor gets there and the child's asleep or the child just got chemotherapy and is not feeling well or has a fever? So there's lots of, um, you know, unexpected concerns that can happen. Some children just decide to kind of take a year off. I don't necessarily recommend that because children need some structure or normalcy in their life during this time. And school is certainly something that kind of provides a structure for a child. So one thing I've seen a lot of parents do for non-oncology transplants, if it's an elective transplant, such as one for sickle cell disease, for example, parents may decide to do the transplant starting in May so that the child would normally be out of school in June, July, and August anyhow. So maybe three of the six months that they will be away from school, the school would be out anyhow. So mm -hmm. that's one possibility. Um, from our perspective, we always got very busy in the summer. We had lots of transplants happening. But obviously, for patients with oncology diagnosis, you can't wait until it's convenient to do a transplant. You have to do it when the time is right. Absolutely. Well, that really makes a lot of sense. So, Nance, let's touch on interaction with other children. We know how important it is, the friendships, you know, they're, they're in isolation enough as it is. How can we help these young ones have more interaction with peers? Certainly, this is a major concern for the child and for their family. Children really lose a lot of friends, unfortunately, along the way. And this just has to be expected, actually. Um, I've certainly seen this. The families that I've spoken to, a lot of their friends just kind of move on in life. And they tend to lose touch with the child because the friends are busy in their schoolwork, in their bands, uh, or in their sports, or in their whatever activities they may be doing. And they just really don't have any idea what it's like for their friend that's getting a bone marrow transplant. So it can really be a problem. A lot of the patients will really miss lots of big events such as picnics or end of the year celebrations, start of the school picnics, dances, football games, you know, all that kind of stuff. And each child may handle that differently. Some will try to stay connected and, you know, interact with their friends on social media. They'll 
be on all the time and they'll they'll say, well, how was the dance? What what happened? Who danced with who? Whatever. But other kids, it just may be too difficult to see their other friends having so much fun and them being sick or not able to go. And a lot of times these children may feel well and feel like they want to go to these things, but we recommend that they stay away and be isolated due to infection control issues. So one thing that I think can really help these kids is interactive video games. I remember in my career when they developed these interactive games where the patient could be in the hospital and their best friend could be playing from their family room and they can be on with Xbox or PlayStation or Nintendo or whatever it is. And they're both online with each other playing from different locations. And this happens all day for all kids. Um, So this is something that's really wonderful for our transplant patients because they can have that interaction with their friends, yet not be physically close. And the infection control issue is not a concern. Definitely. And I think with COVID, we all had to adjust to these opportunities and finding interactions. So for children, they're pros at it. I mean, let's talk about Zoom, how we all got better being on Zoom meetings. Right, right. Previously, you never would have thought that a, you know, a six-year-old or a seven-year-old could be on Zoom. But a lot of these young kids spent, you know, a good portion of the school year on Zoom. So parents can, you know, set up and families can set up FaceTime chats or Zoom meetings or other interactive media things that the children can, you know, interact with their friends. And as I said, some kids, you know, some of the friends really get into it and really want to maintain their relationship with their friend. And unfortunately, other kids just, you know, they get busy and they just move on and, and their lives kind of go a different path. So it works out in a lot of situations that kids can keep up with each other through these Zoom meetings or FaceTime or whatever other apps that you can do or computer technology that can be used. Absolutely. Do you want to talk more about, you know, maybe the teacher staying in touch with the student, how that might work? Yeah, sure. Again, this is variable depending on the school district, the children and each different area, but we definitely have had students stay very close. I've had um, some children actually even, they would set up a computer in the classroom and the child would be literally on their computer screen while all the other kids were in the class. The computer screen would just have the child up in the front on the screen and the teacher would teach and the child could ask questions, answer questions, that kind of situation works. I remember sometimes having to examine some of these kids in the outpatient area. And I'm like, well, maybe we ought to turn the computer screen if I have to pull your shirt up to listen to your chest or something, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, certainly some teachers send work home that can be brought home by other students. And the children can submit their school work as it goes. Obviously, they're not going to be able to keep up in real time necessarily with what's happening in the classroom, depending on what's happening from a, you know, a medical standpoint. Sure. And what about chemo brain? Yeah, that's, that's a very good thing to talk about. Just to discuss what it is, it's um, a mental cloudiness or 
children and adults just lose the sharpness in thinking before and during and after transplant and other chemotherapy. In the medical world, there is some cognitive impairment related to chemotherapy. Some of this is certainly related to all the medications that they're on, the maybe the pain meds, some of it, you know, the anti-emetic drugs, which are the drugs that prevent them from throwing up. And, you know, people being febrile or being very tired and sleeping a lot. But sometimes it may be related to the chemotherapy and particularly the radiation, if the radiation is especially to the brain. And their families may need to inquire about potential cognitive impairment that may be long term. Okay. That would be a good question to ask prior to or during the transplant just to see if that's something that would be expected. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Let's move on, Nancy. Let's talk about the actual hospital stay. What are some ways that parents and loved ones can just make their stay brighter and more cozy? Sure. Well, for one thing, I've been into a lot of um, kids' patients' rooms during transplant, and they're very fun and upbeat and The rooms are decorated to brighten them up. Um, A hint, I would suggest talking to the, you know, the nurses or checking with the hospital to see what rules they might have about putting things on the wall and hanging lights and bringing in refrigerators and all that kind of thing. Some hospitals allow that and some may not. But there's so many fun bedding, um, you know, pillows and blankets and quilts and that kind of thing. Um, Some lights, you know, twinkly lights that can be put into the room. Posters, pictures, large pictures and large pictures of family members or friends and all sorts of other bright and fun, cheery things. It can have a theme if the child's into Batman or into Barbies or, you know, whatever. (laughs) Yeah couple hints on this. Don't bring something in that's really, really treasured because sometimes, you know, if you have a special, special blanket that you love and you couldn't live without, you know, be careful because that could get mixed up with hospital laundry. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes those blankets have been known to be lost. Mm -hmm. You know, there could be blood that gets on it or some people could throw up or, you know, some sure it just might get soiled. So something to keep in mind. Also, The rooms often are switched. So even though the child may be in the hospital for maybe as much as six weeks, a lot of times they're not staying in the same exact room, possibly because of the level of illness, if they possibly get sick and have to move to the intensive care unit, or even if they're doing well, our hospital at least like to do deep cleaning on a scheduled basis. So the children will have to vacate one room and move to a different room. So you kind of don't want to make it too ornate that it would take a day or two to un- <laughs> undo your room. <laughs> sure. Another thing that I have seen, and this was a really, really cool idea, um, an inspiration chain. And it was kind of like those chains that um, kids used to make around the holiday time where they kind of glued papers together, little strips of paper together and interlocked them to make a chain to put on a Christmas tree or to hang. But on each of those little paper chains, uh, little pieces of paper, 
their friends or their family members or their whoever would write little inspirational things like you go girl or you got this or I love you or, you know, and put their name. Yeah. I love that. And so every day the kids or whether it's a Bible verse, whatever works, you know, for this situation. So every day the children could open up one of the little the chains just to get a little bit of inspiration every day. So that that was one fun thing. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. How do you keep kids busy while they're at the hospital, Nancy? Well, that's a good question because, you know, us adults, when we're sick, we just tend to lay in bed and wallow in our misery. <laughs> but um, <laughs> kids really, I mean, they're going to cry when it hurts or or maybe in bed when they don't feel well. But if they're doing well, they're not going to stay in bed. They want to get up and move around. So for older kids, I guess one of the most important things I want to talk about is child life involvement, because child life just is the, is really gets these kids through the hospital stays. They can help provide things like stationary bikes in the room or physical therapists can help with that too. So if, if it's a very active, say, teenager or adolescent, they could bring an exercise bike, uh, you know, a stationary bike into the room. And that could keep a child busy. For the youngsters, the toddlers, I've seen child life bring in mats or these things can be bought, obviously, on the on the Internet. Just mats for the kids to play on on the floor because they're softer and certainly you don't want kids playing on the hospital floors. But these are mats that they can get down on the floor and play with their blocks and and really, you know, do what kids do. Mm-hmm. Some of the other things that our hospital provides is we have hospital bingo every Wednesday. It was one of the hottest shows on TV at, at Hopkins. Um, <laughs> they would provide prizes for kids when they won. Um, there's also other in-house TV shows sometimes that can be interactive. And back to the computers, the game consoles, a lot of the hospitals raise money that goes for things like computer consoles or computers that can be brought into the hospital rooms, and then the kids can do the interactive games with their friends. And that might be a good thing to check out in advance. Like, what consoles do you have? Do you have Xbox um, or do you have PlayStation or Nintendo? And if so, people say, well, what can I do? What can I bring? What can I give you? Well, if, you know, the child has a PlayStation at home, but the hospital provides Xbox, then maybe providing Xbox games for the kid might be a, a good little gift or present for someone. Or, you know, the class could get together and chip in some money and buy the child an Xbox game. So that's that's another thing that might be a, the, something to do to keep the kids going while they're in the hospital. Great idea. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, kids are out walking around unless they're in any kind of isolation. But these kids are out walking the halls. I would just urge parents to make sure that they bring street clothes for the kids to walk around in. They sometimes even have little tricycles that can attach. And I've seen many a parent running behind the kid with the IV pole you know, with four or five bags hanging. (laughs) Oh, boy. And the parent and the child's getting their activity at that time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Good ideas, for sure. Yeah. The other thing is also finding out the visitor policy before you um, start. You know, every hospital's different. Every area is different with their, their COVID rates. So 
definitely find out what the visitor's policy is. Can siblings come in? It may depend on whether it's flu season or not. During the flu season, unfortunately, we were much more restrictive on allowing siblings to come in to visit. But if it's not during flu season, then school visitors, other children could come in or siblings. Okay. So those are some things I can think of that can try to brighten up the hospital stay. Um, Our hospital also had clowns come two days a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that's neat. They were really fun. They, They certainly cheered up the staff as well as the children. So a lot of the hospitals, it's not all doom and gloom, let me tell you. There's a lot of fun <laughs> fun things that happen during the, their transplant time periods. Well, this is great. Anything else on that before we move on to their going home? Well, I guess another thing that I just wanted to talk about is during the hospital stay, taking pills or medicines, obviously, and eating and drinking is certainly a concern. This can also happen in the post-transplant period, but little ones have difficulty usually taking pills and normally we, you know, squirt liquids into their mouth. However, a lot of the medicines that they're going to take really don't taste good. And so a lot of the younger kids we've taught to take pills instead of liquid because if you can take the pill quickly, you know, and swallow it you can avoid the taste. Or as a lot of our nurses and child life specialists would do, they would wrap up the pills in things like a fruit roll-up or something. <laughs> so that then you just pop that in your mouth and you swallow it, get a lot of that good fruit juiciness in there. Well, that's great. Yeah, I think that might be something to really work on in the pre-transplant time period if you have a little time. Just thinking about teaching your child to take pills. I know our child life specialists would start with very little, little things, things like those mini M&Ms, and they would teach the child to swallow a mini M&M, and then they'd move it up to a, you know, once they mastered that, they would move it up to the size of a Tic Tac or something, and then move it up to, you know, something even bigger. So just might be something for the family to work on even before and during the hospital stays. Okay, great. Very informative. So let's talk about going home. So they get through their transplant. Anything that they could prepare better? Yeah, I'd like to touch on this because um, it's a really long and lonely isolation period. A lot of um, families think, oh my gosh, the transplant's over. We're going home. That's great. Well, I hate to burst their bubble, but the transplant's not over the day you go home. There's still so much follow-up, and there's a long period afterward of potential, um, you know, follow-up and close monitoring. Okay. At our hospital, the families had to stay in the area, no matter where they lived, even if they lived out of state. We had to have them stay in the area for 100 days from transplant time or longer if there were complications. So if you were in the hospital for 30 days, then that's, you know, two more months that the patient had to stay close. And the reason for that was so that in case they had fevers or in case they had any complications, they could be readmitted to the hospital to their original transplant site, not to a place that uses different protocols and procedures. Okay. Just to let people know, on my first visit with families after they were discharged, 
one of the things that I usually told them is it's so great you're out of the hospital, but there's a good chance you'll be back in for something or other. It probably won't be a long visit, maybe just a night or a couple nights, but it's normal. So don't be really bummed out, you know, kind of expect that you'll be readmitted for something or other. That way, maybe, you know, they'll have that expectation. I think that's great advice. And if it doesn't happen, that, that's great. But at least they're not completely devastated if it does happen. Right, exactly. And I've, I've seen a lot of people that get very devastated and think, you know, it's gonna, it's like starting over, which a lot of times, again, it might just be a night or two. Okay. But this time period is still a period of isolation. These patients have received a new immune system. They're on medications that actively suppress their immune system. So we, as the medical team, recommend that they're isolated from other children, other people, not just children, um, for a long period of time. We would recommend mostly for as long as six months at least, which is, again, a long time. They, at 100 days, we would have them, if they were doing well, go back to their local hospital or move back to their home and have follow-up at their local hospital or potentially drive back and forth to our center. But we still didn't want them in school. We didn't want them to be going out to the football games and the picnics and all that kind of thing. So again, just to be prepared for that, the transplant, unfortunately, is a very long haul. Mm -hmm. It is a very busy time medically. Um, there are frequent clinic visits. Um, when our patients are first out of the hospital, we see them two, sometimes three times a week, sometimes five days a week at the beginning. And then gradually, as they do better, they have less frequent visits, possibly twice a week and then once a week and then maybe every other week. So it kind of slowly, um, you know, it spreads out. But from the medical point of view, we're checking on their blood counts. We're checking on the levels of some of their medicines. We're looking for signs of infection or graft versus host disease. So even though they're not in the hospital actively being treated, we're very closely monitoring to watch over the child for all these potential complications. Very good. Wow. We've covered a lot here today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I'd like to just point out is that it's a difficult period for families. You know, the families often have to take off work. We always recommended that there's one specific caretaker always for a child. And that person's in charge of like the medical knowledge and the medications. Um, we understand that it's not possible for that one person to bring them to every single clinic visit, but I would advise against kind of arranging a schedule that neighbor X brings them to the clinic on Monday and, and neighbor Y brings them on, uh, you know, Wednesday and neighbor Z brings them on Friday because we, the medical staff needs to interact with the caretaker and we don't need just to speak to the patient. You know, we really need to speak with the caretaker and the team. So if there is somebody that has to bring the child to the clinic visits, oftentimes a follow-up phone call is indicated. Okay. Um, some other quick things that uh, might be recommended, though, I just want to give some hints that 
I've recommended to our patients um, to do in this post-transplant period, because a lot of times they do feel well and they feel like they could get out and, and be more active. So anything that they can do outside usually is a good thing, kind of like with the COVID situation. Taking the kids outside to playgrounds or to a park, and especially during the day when all the other kids are in school. You know, you don't want to take them to the playground on Saturday afternoon when there's lines to get on the sliding boards, <laughs> but bring them, yeah, on a, a Tuesday morning, you know, when all the kids are in school or whatever, so that you have the playground to yourself or taking walks in the park. Kids can go outside and ride bikes or shoot hoops or play in their backyard. I've even had um, families call, you know, sometimes there's a big movie coming out, the premiere of some Batman movie or whatever it is, and the kids are super, you know, sad that they can't go see it. And I've had families call theaters to see if they could, like, set up a private screening or rent a box or a room for a private showing, maybe, you know, on a, again, a weekday morning or something so that there's nobody really in the theater. And a lot of the theater owners say, sure, come in, you can go come for free and we'll give you popcorn or whatever, you know. <laughs> well, that's nice. Yeah. Terrific. So there are lots of fun things that kids can do um, and families can do to keep the kids busy in this post-transplant time period. Well, thank you, Nancy. I'm going to get ready to wrap things up. Is there anything else you want to cover or any resources you want to mention? Yeah, I definitely would. One other thing is just fluids are certainly a problem. A lot of kids, for some reason, they don't like to drink a lot after the transplant. And so pushing fluids, um, and this may be that they need to drink more fluids due to their immune suppressive medications. So, you know, buying them a favorite cup or a mug or find special drinks that they like. And there are even some computer apps that you can give, like, I would give somebody a goal to drink, say, a liter of fluid or, you know, whatever, four cups of, of fluid a day. And there was a, a computer app at that time. I don't know if it's still available, but, you know, if they drank one cup, then they could go on the app and, and it was like a picture of a plant. Yes, I've heard of this. Yeah, it would kind of perk the plant up. And then with two drink, two <laughs> cups, the plant would get more perked up. And by the time they hit the goal of four cups, you know, then the plant would be all pretty and sparkly and, and great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Right. I will find out the name of it and put it in the show notes. It was just mentioned on one of our Lunch and Learns recently. Oh, good. Good. And then there are two resources, two books that I was just Alerted to this morning by a nurse practitioner that worked with us with our bone marrow transplant patients. There are two with different perspectives from age-wise. One is called More Than You Can Handle. That's the name of the book. Um, it's More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting-Edge Medicine that Cured the Uncurable. And this book is by Miguel Sancho, S-A-N-C-H-O. Great. Basically, this is really a journey through the deepest valleys and peaks of a father's caregiving experience through um, this child's bone marrow transplant. And this is a young child. Um, I don't know whether it's an infant or a toddler, but the child has a very life-threatening genetic disease that consumed their family's world. So this is one that maybe if your child is, you know, on the younger side, um, 
infant or, or toddler, you might relate to this one more. And the second one is called Between Two Kingdoms, a memoir of a life interrupted. This is a, a unique twist on the coming of age journey of it's a memoir of a young woman post-college. She was just at the end of graduating from college. And it talks about her journey from symptom onset through diagnosis, treatment, love, uh, loss, um, and a cure. Okay. It's an immersive perspective on transplant through the eyes of a young adult survivor. So it's a fascinating must read for parents of the older kids, I think. Sure. Thank you so much, Nancy. This has just been terrific. I think it's time to wrap things up here. And I just wanted to Thank you so much for being with us today. Sure. Thank you very much, Peggy. I'd really like to thank you and the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity to share any ideas. And I hope I've been helpful today. Thank you. You absolutely have been helpful. And we appreciate you. Here you are retired, coming out of retirement to do this for us. And <laughs> it is greatly appreciated. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank <laughs> you. Whatever I can do to help. That's been my, you know, my life for 34 years, so I'd like to help others as much as I can. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them. And don't miss future episodes of our show. Follow Marrow Masters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. And to connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes.